with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of Eye on Travel for this first week of March 2024. Of course, uh, I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 23 degrees, 15 minutes north, 109 degrees, 45 minutes west. We are in Los Cabos in Baja California Sur in Mexico, coming to you from the Chileno Bay Resort and of course, always reachable. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. You know, we love coming to Los Cabos and we got to, you know, give them a little tip of the hat because they're one of the first communities in Mexico that I've noticed that have truly been pushing for sustainability. They've been truly pushing for, you know, for zero carbon. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show because you can actually choose where you want to go based on the level of responsibility for any travel provider. But you're starting to see it as almost in a movement here. In Los Cabos, and we'll we'll talk about that. But first, we got to talk about the news. First of all, the FAA and the and the Boeing situation continues to get crazier. The FAA making an announcement this week or earlier this week that Boeing's behavior has been uh, uh, confusing, misleading, and inadequate, and giving the manufacturer, meaning Boeing, ninety days to come up with a plan. A plan. Wait a second. Isn't the FAA the regulatory agency? Shouldn't the FAA come up with a plan that they can then enforce about the behavior of this company? Think about this. The person running the Boeing 737 program left the company earlier in the week. That made him like the third person in five years to lose the job. So we're dealing with a safety culture problem at Boeing. But if we're going to be honest, we're dealing with a safety culture problem at the regulatory agency the FAA. And by the way, when the FAA told them they wanted to see a plan, they gave them 90 days to come up with it. You don't need 90 days based on the NTSB investigation to know what's wrong. You cannot allow the manufacturer to self-certify their planes as airworthy. You cannot allow the manufacturer to inspect their own planes on the assembly line and deem them safe and complete. Now, that took me about, I think, 20 seconds to say, not 90 days. That's number one. Number two, we need Congress to change the legislation and the funding and the allocation of funds to give the FAA the resources to be able to train and hire third-party independent inspectors to do the work the FAA should have been doing all along. Where's that? But there's another problem, and it's a deeper problem, and it gets back to the original mandate given the FAA when they were established by an act of Congress back in 1935. They gave them a dual mandate, which was impossible to perform. Part one, which we all understand and we support, is to enact and enforce airline safety regulations. We got that one. What was part two? Here comes the problem. To promote the business of aviation. It cannot do both. Major built-in conflict of interest. Because every time the FAA is confronted with a problem for which there's a solution, Instead of saying, let's go for the solution, they want to figure out what's the economic impact to the industry before they make that decision. I have a problem with that. If you have a problem, and a real problem, and you know what it is, 
and then you come up with a solution and you know you can implement the solution, well, then it's a no-brainer. You implement the solution. We're dealing with people's lives. I'll give you a very recent example. We've seen a number of accidents, thankfully survivable over the last couple of years, in which the NTSB investigators were trying to access the CVR. That stands for the Cockpit Voice Recorder, which records either the last 30 minutes or the last two hours of all conversations in the cockpit. But what happens when you exceed that time? Then it overrides it and erases over what was recorded. And the NTSB is left with nothing. So for a long period of time now, the NTSB has been asking for a change in the rules to put in a CVR with a 25-hour record time so you get the last 25 hours of whatever was said in the cockpit so you can establish a a pattern or track a problem and, and, and learn clues earlier. Now, does the technology exist to put in that CVR with a 25-hour limit? Of course it does. Uh, Could it be done tomorrow? Of course it could. But guess what? The airlines and the manufacturer have been lobbying the FAA not to do it. And what's their reasoning? It's going to cost more money. Uh Uh-huh, it is. And the FAA basically came out with a ruling saying they're not going to give the airlines an immediate task of doing it because it would cost too much money. So guess what? They're going to give them five years to do it, and only on new planes. Am I missing something here? There's something terribly wrong here, and we got to put an end to it. Everybody who's listening here, you can be very happy to know that we've just celebrated the 30 safest years in commercial aviation since aviation began. That's the good news. The bad news is, can we maintain that batting average? And based on stories that I just told you, and there are many others, The answer is, I don't think so. So Congress has a responsibility here. So does Boeing internally. Boeing needs to get their act together to survive the inspections of an independent FAA. And that means the FAA has to start doing the work they should have been doing all along. No more delaying. No more siding on economic impact. Once you have a problem and a solution, basically, do the solution. Implement it. There is no excuse for that. Because if you know there's a problem and you know there's a solution and then you make, for whatever reason, in this case just economic, not to implement that solution, then I'm not a lawyer, I don't play one on TV, but I would guess you'd have a pretty strong case for criminal negligence. Okay, that's the story there. Let me give you another story because we're coming up on an interesting anniversary. Can you believe that 10 years ago next week was the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370 somewhere out there in the Indian Ocean? It's been 10 years since that 777 disappeared and has never been found. And uh, the mystery, of course, continues. The investigation continues. Uh, Of course, the conspiracy theories continue as well. And in any accident investigation, the investigators have to rule out everything until they can rule in any one thing. They've been able to rule out a lot, but they haven't been able to rule in anything. It remains one of the most imponderable uh, aviation mysteries in history. It's frustrating. It's, for someone like me, uh, I mean, depressing, 
that we can't get any closer to the truth. And, uh, and, the, and the, the investigation, of course, continues in our first decade of this disappearance. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to an author who wrote a book called Disappearing Act. She's been on the show before, uh, Florence DeShangi, who's going to give us her update on what she thinks may have happened, may not have happened, and, of course, whether we're ever going to find out. Is it a mystery or is it a secret? We'll find out when we come back to Los Cabos and the Chileno Bay Resort when we return to Ion Travel right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues for this first weekend of March 2024, coming to you from the Chileno Bay Resort and Residences right here in Los Cabos in Baja, California, sir. You know the drill. You can always reach me. Just reach out to me by emailing me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, helping the people who need it the most and opportunities for you to help them as well. Every time and just about everywhere you travel, we like to localize those opportunities. And of course, Los Cabos is no exception. And one of my favorites, the Los Cabos Humane Society, founded 30 years ago, actually 32 years ago, back in 1992, they, they really focus on finding loving homes for animals in need, providing medical treatments, and, of course, educating us about how to care for animals. Of course, you can volunteer when you come down here. You can leave the beach long enough to care for them in so many different ways. And, of course, I just have to caution you that if you're going to go out there and volunteer to help with the animals, there's about a 97% chance you're going to take one home. And what's wrong with that? Uh, if you want more information on how you can help, that's easy. It's LosCabosHumaneSociety.org or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. My next guest is reminding me about how old we've become, about how long ago this was. Uh, we, are, we are acknowledging an anniversary in about six days, one that we don't want to acknowledge, one that we can't believe actually happened 10 years ago. So let me set the scene for you. It was about 1.20 in the morning on the 8th of March, 2014. 10 years ago, and that's when a Boeing 777, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, carrying 239 passengers, disappeared into the night and was never seen or heard from again. It's one of the most amazing aviation mysteries. In fact, it's one of the most amazing mysteries of all time. And here we are 10 years later. How much do we still know? No. How much do we know at all? Are there any clues that we haven't figured out or that were right in front of us at all, at all times? Of course, in 10 years, every conspiracy theory imaginable has surfaced. And in any accident investigation, I want to remind everybody listening that if you're doing the right work as an accident investigator, you must painstakingly rule out everything one at a time until you can rule out anything. And that's what the investigators were trying to do. But 
in the absence of so much evidence, there's still a lot of stuff they haven't been able to rule out. Joining me now is the author of a great book about this. She's the Le Monde correspondent based in Hong Kong. The name of the book, The Disappearing Act. Florence de Changi, welcome again, and nice to have you back on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. So, I mean, this is one of the most unexplained, frustrating stories I've ever covered. Because at a certain yeah, point... Yeah, same a, here. Yeah, because at a certain point in any investigation, uh, with, with such few exceptions, you're, someone's going to stumble onto a clue, it'll be the smoking gun, it'll be the linchpin in solving the puzzle. But in this case, we weren't looking for a needle in the haystack. We couldn't even find the haystack, right? Yeah, if you were looking in the Southern Indian Ocean, no chance, indeed. I know, and one of the deepest oceans in the world. And of course, we've had a couple of pieces of evidence literally wash up over the last couple of years. That was that wing flopper that showed up on Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean uh, that was discovered, uh, covered with barnacles. Um, But then not much else since, except in the last, I think, what, three weeks, uh, there was a report from an Australian fisherman. Why he waited 10 years to tell us this is, is news to me. But there was a report from an Australian fisherman who was, who was fishing with his nets and claims that he netted a huge part of an airplane wing somewhere where the plane could have, emphasis on the words could have, gone down. And he couldn't lift it no. to the surface. And, and so we no. don't, what do we know about that? No, look, honestly, uh, Peter, I think by now this thing should not be called a mystery anymore. It should be moved into the box of a big state secret. There is no, you know, from the beginning, I've always said this story is not just incredible. It is not credible. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, based on, yes, the years of investigation that I've done, I have completely eliminated the official narrative that they have tried to uh, feed us with which is the one of the crash in the Southern Indian Ocean. By now, and I know it's, uh, I mean, for people who haven't like read my book or looked at the evidence, it's difficult to believe, but I am adamant there was no crash in the Southern Indian Ocean. And as far as the debris that have been found first in Reunion and that has been uh, studied very carefully by the French authorities, I have also dismissed this uh, flatron as a piece of evidence. As for all the other, you know, uh, jet sam, flood sam, that uh, someone, in, I mean, actually it's, a, it's an American uh, person who keeps finding debris, all kind of, uh, yeah, pieces of, which may look like uh, plain debris, but by the way, there were uh, crashes in that part of the world uh, years ago. Uh, they have no solid validity. The only other real piece credible piece, which was also significant, a bit like the flapron, which was found a few uh, months later, uh, has been said, has been confirmed, but with no evidence provided. The flapron, the, some evidence has been provided to explain why and how they linked it to MH370. And when you look at it closely, you find many reasons to actually disbelieve uh, the, um, that the flapron ever uh, was part of MH370. So as far as I'm concerned, 
if there is one thing I know for sure, is that the plane never crashed in the Southern Indian Ocean. That's, that's one thing, one step I've done in the direction of the truth. Okay, so do you know where it crashed, or you just don't know where it didn't crash? Yes, I mostly know where it did not crash. I know it's, uh, it's frustrating, but I think it's very important uh, for the truth to emerge. Just as you said before, you know, first you have to eliminate what has not happened. And, and, and what has not happened, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, the plane did not crash in the Southern Indian Ocean. And another thing that I have, I think, highlighted very strongly, and I'm equally adamant, is the fact that the captain, Captain Zahari Shah, was actually a very competent, a very trustworthy, basically the best guy you could have in the cockpit in a situation of crisis. So, as you may have noticed, these are the two elements that keep coming back every three to six months when there is a new story pretending to bring new light on this so-called mystery. Each time, it will reiterate either the fact that the plane crashed somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean, which is not true, or the fact that the captain has been somehow involved. Because this is, these are the two components of this fabricated narrative that I'm basically fighting against. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, being, a, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a journalist. You know, I, I try, I do, I, I do my best. Uh, I think that once the family and the public opinion has understood and is fully aware of the fact that the official narrative is fabricated, there should be an uproar to request from the authorities that they who know share the truth of what uh, happened to this uh, plane and most importantly to the 239 people. It is not acceptable to be told such, you know, enormous um, lies, basically. And when you think about it, governments have been quiet. The manufacturer of Boeing has been incredibly quiet. Um, exactly. And in the case of wrongful death, this particular case ranks as one of the lowest insurance payouts in history because in the absence of evidence, you can't litigate negligence. So the families who lost loved ones, they received very little compensation, in, 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 pathetically little compensation. And we're talking to yeah. Florence yeah. de Changi, the author of The Disappearing Act. And Florence, when we come back, I want to throw another theory at you. Okay, we don't know where it crashed, but I'm going to suggest that we talk about perhaps how it crashed, uh, starting at 38,000 feet and going from there. Um, very interesting story about that when you look at the aerodynamic limits of any plane, but in this particular case, the aerodynamic limits of a Boeing 777. Here we are on the 10th anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370, talking Florence de Changi, the author of The Disappearing Act. And when we come back, more about one of the most profound aviation mysteries in history. Back with more from Los Cabos right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back with you again from Los Cabos in Baja, California, sir. On this first weekend of March 2024, we've been speaking with Florence Deschangy, the author of The Disappearing Act, an amazing chronicle of her investigation into the disappearance 10 years ago of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Florence, before we went to the break, I said I wanted to talk about at least my theory, not of where the plane crashed or why, but perhaps how. Because if you're flying on autopilot at 38,000 feet, and let's assume the plane continues along whatever path it was on at a certain time and with no contact with the outside world. At a certain moment, it's a basic law of supply and demand. It runs out of fuel. And if a plane runs out of fuel at 38,000 feet, forget all the movies you've seen. It doesn't behave the way you think it does. It starts a slow descent, which then continues into a, a steeper descent, continuing to pick up speed. And then at a certain point, way before it ever impacts the ocean, the plane exceeds its aerodynamic limits and it literally begins to rip itself apart in the air. And so the idea that this plane, wherever it hit, hit intact, I think is not the case. Do you agree? Completely. Yeah, for sure. Which makes finding it even more difficult because there's no one big radar hit that you're going to find in one concentrated debris field. It could be anywhere. Yeah, if it is, uh, if it, if if what you described is what happened, uh, and the plane hit at full speed and full strength, then it's a, indeed a massive explosion that would probably reduce um, most I, Actually, uh, Peter, I'm not very comfortable commenting on this because I'm not familiar enough. Because in the in the scenario that you describe, you you would also imagine that. The appendices, the wings would first uh, fall, I mean, uh, come off oh, yeah. the hull, etc. And so each of these pieces would have a different strength and impact on the sea. So Correct. it's not as if all in one hit and then really explode. So, um, yeah, I, I don't feel qualified to comment on your scenario. It's, it's a possible one. You know, uh, also for what you said, the plane being on autopilot, I always said that if the plane, if it was really the idea of the, the plane and the pilot to simply disappear, it would have been much simpler to keep going on its, uh, where it was and, and keep going straight in a straight line towards the Pacific because the Pacific is actually like three times bigger than the Indian Ocean and it's actually even deeper. So, What's very odd is this super complicated and sophisticated narrative that they created where a plane did a U-turn that they can't even recreate when they tried seven times with the simulators and, and, um, and with all kinds of different um, criteria. And then this U-turn going down. And I mean, the whole thing makes no sense. And indeed, if the idea was just to disappear the plane, well, just go straight and go and crash in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Exactly. Well, going back to for one more second to my scenario, we all remember the miracle on the Hudson, Captain Sully Sullenberger landing uh, a, a plane on the Hudson River moments after yeah. takeoff. And what saved so many people on that plane was that when he landed, he had full tanks of gas and oil being lighter than water. That plane stayed afloat, which allowed the rescuers to get there before it submerged. And of course, they were able to save the plane itself. But in a situation like this, if you continue my thought that he was already out of gas, when he hit, nothing stayed afloat. It just sank to the bottom. 
and that's what makes the search issue so much diff, so much more difficult because it did it came off the plane in my scenario at different altitudes and at different speeds and uh, but here we are again 10 years later so the question I have to ask you and by the way I'm not expecting a complete answer because I don't you know there's not enough information but I have to ask it anyway here we are 10 years later Florence are we ever going to find it We'll find the truth. We won't find the plane, but we'll find the truth. And how do we do that? <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> um, yeah. Watch this space. Next time you invite me, I will tell you more. Uh, no, I'm still working on it. You know, it's, as I said, it's not a, it's not a mystery anymore. It's a secret. And when you say, uh, when you say a secret, it means that some people know and, and some people with a conscience and with a little bit of humanity and ethic and, uh, will speak out. It's not possible to keep such a secret for, uh, for such a long time. And especially with, you know, with the thousands of people who are uh, suffering from it. If it was just a cargo plane and two professional pilots, we could forget and forgive. But in this instance, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not credible in the first place, and it's not uh, acceptable uh, ever. Well, the hope is that somehow we will benefit from the passage of time, context and perspective, and somewhere along the line, there'll be a ray of light of, of, the, of the one piece of evidence that we need to solve this puzzle. Because right now, in my entire career as a journalist, and I would suggest yours as well, this is the, mm. one, one, this is the one story that continues to, to bug me, that continues to frustrate me. That can t- because I've covered yeah. so many aviation incidents and accidents where within, let's anywhere from 36 hours to 36 months, we know the probable cause definitively. And this is the one where we Absolutely. just don't know. It's just amazing. The name of the book, again, well worth a read, The Disappearing Act. And the author from Hong Kong, Florence de Changi. Florence, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll hope to talk to you soon. You have Thank an, you, Peter. You have an open invitation. And when we come back to Los Cabos, <laughs> when we come back to Los Cabos, I'm going to tell you a story about an airline you probably have never heard of, but you can get there from here. Back with more ah. from Los Cabos right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. And welcome back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you again. Of course, you know the drill. You can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. Uh, the other day, a friend of mine said to me, uh, we're, we're both had to go to Las Vegas. He said, so how are you flying? I said, well, LAX to, to, to uh, Las Vegas. He said, you're an idiot. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I go, to, I go to another airport, I go to Burbank or Van Nuys, I jump on this plane, I don't go through security, uh, they treat me well, uh, and I'm there in 40 minutes or less, and I save you know, hours in traffic and craziness, and uh, I'm traveling in style. I said, well, how are you going? He goes, JSX. I go, all right, explain to me JSX. So now we're going to go one step beyond that, because joining me now is uh, somebody who I've known for many, many years, one of the founders of JetBlue, 
later on in other incarnations and other airlines. But now he is the co-founder and CEO of JSX, Alex Wilcox. Alex, thanks for joining. Peter, absolute pleasure to be here and uh, great to talk to you again. So let's get back to, to the basics of what JSX is. You guys are really a, a hop-on jet service, right? I mean, I mean, you know, you just drive out to a, to, not to a major international airport. You drive out to a smaller regional airport, park your car, walk about 10 feet. You don't have to be there three hours before the flight. Uh, and you just walk to the plane. Yes, Peter. And you're mostly right. We are a hop-on jet service. That's what we call ourselves. And the reason we say that is because you can get from your car into the airplane seat within 20 minutes. You know, we ask our customers to show up 20 minutes before the flight, 40 minutes for international. Uh, we do fly to Cabo as well from Dallas and L.A. Uh, and by the way, uh, your friend um, and you should also know that we do fly to LAX, by the way, to Cabo and to Las Vegas. Um, we're on the south side of LAX, you know, off of Imperial. Uh, but we we do, in fact, fly from LAX as well as Burbank. Burbank is by far a bigger operation and we fly to many more places from there. Um, uh, and we do, by the way, uh, as our customers know well, have security. It's a privately, uh, we do it ourselves. Uh, and small is beautiful when it comes to security too. So we are at LAX and we do have security, but in every other respect, you're absolutely right. It's a completely different kind of air carrier. Uh, we we show up, uh, we tell our customers to show up 30 minutes, uh, 20 minutes before the flight, hop on and go. There's only 30 people on the airplane, so it only takes us a few minutes to board and to deplane. De de when you arrive at the other end, we take your bags off the back of the airplane and uh, bring them right to the wing. And so you, you don't have to wait at the baggage claim. Uh, these are generally small. If, if we're at a major airport, we're at the smaller side, the corporate side, corporate jet side of the airport, or we are, as you say, quite correctly, uh, many smaller airports too, like Concord and Taos, New Mexico and <clears throat> Destin, Florida, uh, Opelika, Florida, not Miami International, uh, Carlsbad Airport, not San Diego. Uh, but in some cases, like you know, LAS and LAX, uh, we do actually fly to the major carrier too. But it's a completely different barrier, uh, kind of, uh, of carrier, and we're in our eighth year of operation, uh, well over a million customers, and uh, the highest rated air carrier in North America, according to Apex and our own NPS score. Yeah, but it is part of a TSA-approved security program, so nothing's being compromised. All right, so having said that, here's what I like about it. First of all, you got power outlets, you got complimentary snacks, and the best thing going, free Wi-Fi with Starlink, which Elon Musk may be out of his mind, but he's he's designed a great satellite system. That I'll give him. Yes, yeah, he's uh, SpaceX and and uh, Elon have definitely created a game changer when it comes to in-flight Wi-Fi. Uh, I've got fiber at my house here in Dallas, and uh, the Wi-Fi on board our airplanes is actually better. Uh, occasionally, in some of our airport locations, the, the Wi-Fi or the, the internet will go away. And we'll get on the airplane to uh, check our customers in. I mean, it's that good. And it works from gate to gate. And there's no there's no uh, login screen. There's nothing. You just get on the, you find the SSID. It says free JSX Starlink Wi-Fi. You click uh, connect and, you, and you're good to go. Two megabits per second to your device for the entirety of your time on the airplane. And it's included. And let's talk about the planes themselves. 30-seaters? These are ever 145s and 135s. Uh, and they are originally designed for 37 and, and 50 seats, respectively. Most of our planes are Ember 145s and have a one-by-one -one configuration, only 30 seats. There's 16 rows on the left-hand side, 14 rows on the right-hand side, and the right-hand side's got this little side table next to it as well. There's no overhead bins. That's the biggest difference between a commercial jet you know, and a private jet, Peter, is overhead bins. If you got an overhead bin, you are not on a private airplane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Whereas, uh, so we've, we've taken those out, which gives the cabin a big spacious roomy feel. So for your customers who are well acquainted with the regional jet version of the Ember 145 for your listeners, uh, this is a totally different, totally different bag. Um, and this is a, a completely different feeling experience. So yes, yeah, a wide, um, lots of elbow room, nobody's sitting next to you. Every seat is an aisle and a window, um, as well as um, lots of legroom. We're talking to Alex Wilcox, the co-founder and CEO of JSX. When we come back, Alex, I want to talk to you about price comparison and some of the routes that you fly that might surprise some people. We'll be back with more from Los Cabos, by the way, as uh, Ion Travel continues right after this. Stay with us. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg here and we're back in Los Cabos as Ion Travel continues speaking with Alex Wilcox, the co-founder and CEO of JSX. So given the routes that you're flying, and in many cases you are you are competing on those routes with, with the major carriers, how are you on price? Well, we are uh, often less than first class on a commercial air carrier, uh, and sometimes we're even equivalent to economy class. But we do tend, on average, to be a little bit higher. Our average ticket price is about $400 each way. Uh, the longer the flight, the higher the price. You know, New York to Florida can be up to $1,000 each way. Uh, if you're going from Boca or Opalaca up to Westchester County or Morristown, uh, same for Cabo. You know, it ranges between $400 and $1,000 each way, depending on day of the week and and uh, obviously market-driven pricing. Uh, but some of our repairs can be as little as $259 each way. You know, Burbank. To Vegas on an off-peak direction. Wow, and and you know, for those people whose time is money, that makes a big difference. Worth every penny, of course. Yeah, we, that's what we save. You know, as opposed to spending two hours at a major airport. I've, I've, I was actually in Los Cabos last weekend, and uh, I flew on JSX, and I got, I checked um, some of our competitors, and they were saying show up three hours ahead of time uh, to either LAX or Los Cabos uh, for international processing, and we taught our customers forty minutes, and I feel badly about that. <laughs> Well, let's talk about plane types because you just announced you're about to buy 330 hybrid electric aircraft. We are. We're not going to take them overnight. And uh, there's three different models of airplanes that we uh, have uh, ordered. One is a nine-seat hybrid electric airplane. They're all high-wing hybrid electric airplanes. That's what they have in common. They're not all electric because I think that technology is far away. Uh, but one is a nine-seater. One is a 19-seater, which, as you know, is the biggest you can have uh, before you need a flight attendant on board. And then one is a 30-seater, which is basically uh, will can replace our Ember 135s on shorter routes. And so between the 9, the 19, and the 30-seater, we're very optimistic that at least one, if not two or three, all three will get built. Um, but they are admittedly several years away. They're still in the design and manufacturing and certification stage. And so uh, we're not going to be seeing them you know, in the immediate future. So how many years are we away from this? You know, if it depends on who you ask. I think the optimistic uh, people are saying we're about five years away. I think, you know, the pessimists are saying it's 15 years away. The great thing about these three platforms, uh, the Hart aircraft, which is the 30-seater, the Electra, which is the nine-seater, and the Aura, which is the 19-seater, they're all essentially conventionally designed airplanes. And so there's no super new technology. This is kind of the, the Prius, you know, the first electric car was the hybrid, right? Right. Uh, that, that was successful and mass produced. And so I think 
you know, probably somewhere in, the, in between the five and the 15 ranges where these will start to get certified and produced. And what's, you know, you speak about range, what about nautical miles? What's, what are the range of these planes? Yeah, great question, Peter. You know, in all electric mode, they're all about 200 miles. Uh, but when you turn on the gas generator, uh, which will recharge the batteries, you know, in flight, they can all take off on full electric, by the way. So they'll be super quiet in communities and able to fly to airports that, you know, would otherwise not welcome this kind of uh, service. Um, you can go up to 900, 900 uh, nautical miles, uh, depending on the aircraft. Wow. So having said all that, uh, what about frequency? Now, going to your current schedule, you know, the one thing that major carriers can always compete on, or at least in the past, especially if you're a new carrier, is they can come up against you and say, okay, well, we're doing 10 flights a day. You're only doing one. So we're more attractive. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. And certainly in, in business markets, you know, frequency is important. But obviously, you know, one of the most profitable carriers in history, Allegiant, you know, they do couple times a week in some of their markets. And so we do a lot more than uh, than that in, in most of our markets, but it varies. You know, we have high frequency markets, Burbank to Vegas, we can do up to 10 times a day in each direction, you know, on a, on a Friday and on a Sunday, um, you know, five or six a day between Burbank and Oakland, Dallas and Houston. Um, but more of our markets are one or two a day, you know, in terms of the longer markets, especially, but, you know, we, we'll go a couple times a day from Dallas to, uh, to Boulder, Colorado, which is a by the way, the most convenient airport, 16 minutes from downtown. You can be in Coors Field in 16 minutes from Boulder, uh, from BJC Airport, or up at uh, CU if you want to go catch a Buffs game. Um, so we are we have big plans for BJC where we fly from uh, from Southern California, from Northern, uh, and, and from uh, from Texas, uh, four different markets into BJC right now, including Las Vegas and Phoenix. And from Los Cabos? Los Cabos, we fly to Dallas and uh, up to twice a day uh, on the peak days. And also from LAX. Wow! And in so, fact, we fly we fly to the, the Southern Moore Airport, uh, the one that's a little bit closer to downtown. It's uh, it's uh, MMSL Airport, San Jose Air, uh, International Airport. And how are the majors taking to you? Well, it depends who you ask. You know, uh, two of our investors, our biggest investors, are JetBlue and United Airlines, and they obviously like us a lot because they've invested in us. Um, some of their competitors uh, feel a little bit differently about us, and I guess you'd have to ask them. Uh, you know, some of these incumbent air carriers that are also based here in Dallas perhaps think differently about competition than they used to. And uh, they now try to, instead of competing in the market, are now trying to compete uh, in the legislature, try to get us outlawed because they don't like the competition. But I think we've pretty effectively beaten them back with the assistance of our customers, by the way. We set a record, Peter. Uh, the FAA asked for public comments when the airlines asked for the rules to be changed. And we set a record, 75,000 people responded uh, to this FAA docket. These are dockets that usually get, you know, 50 to a couple hundred uh, responses. We had over 75,000 people, 60,000 of them were already posted on the uh, uh, regulations.gov website. And I would say over 99% of those were extremely supportive of JSX's position. So we're not going anywhere. Alex Wilcox, founder and CEO of JSX. Thank you for joining us, sir. Our time is up for that for this hour. That's the music you're hearing right there. But we'll be back with more from one of your destination cities, Los Cabos, as Ion Travel returns right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome back to Ion Travel for this first weekend of March 2024. I hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be. And if you're just joining us, let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 23 degrees, 15 minutes north, 109 degrees, 45 minutes west. We've been here before. We always love coming back. We're in Los Cabos in Baja, California, sir, at the Chileno Bay Resort. And of course, you can always reach me. Just email me, name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. As I said at the earlier part of the show, uh, Los Cabos is distinguishing itself in its push for sustainability and this resort and many others are really doing the hard work at turning it to a like a carbon zero environment and they should be commended for it we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show as well but i want to talk to you about something else and that is and it's in the news but not necessarily as much in the news as it should be and for all the right reasons here here we go AI, artificial intelligence, and the world of chatbots. Everybody is talking about the promise of AI. Allow me to talk about the threat, especially when it comes to travel. A case in point just happened and was actually ended up in court in Canada. Here's the story. An airline passenger called Air Canada trying to get information about their flight. Air Canada, like so many other airlines now, steered this passenger without any negotiation to a chatbot. And the passenger asked the chatbot the question. Guess what? The chatbot gave that passenger misleading, inaccurate, and damaging information that cost that passenger a lot of money, time, and effort, confusion. What did that passenger do? He complained to Air Canada, and Air Canada didn't want to do anything about it. So he sued them. And this is the legal position that Air Canada took in court. You're not going to believe this. They said, we're not responsible because the chatbot is its own single legal entity. And we're not responsible for its behavior. But it was your chatbot. You programmed it with the information that ultimately led to inaccurate, misleading, and damaging stuff for that passenger. And uh, so Air Canada says, no, we're not responsible. Did that fly in court? It did not. The judge ruled against Air Canada, hopefully setting a precedent so they can't use that defense again. You know me, I love a conversation. I beg for one. I live for one. You should too. Uh, it, look, 10% of the, of the travel books right now that are being sold on Amazon are generated by AI and authors that do not exist. And in most cases, they're inaccurate and misleading. And they look like real books with real covers and real content. And people are buying them, not realizing it's a mistake. And what's keeping someone from stopping Amazon from selling fake books? Right now, I'm not hearing anything. And if you're listening to this show and you work for Amazon, please come on our show and tell us what you're doing about this. Right now... If I go to the airport and I see a kiosk, I run. I want to talk to a human being, and so do you. Now, the human being might give you misleading information, too. That, we've seen that happen more than once. But at least you know who it is. And there's some recourse there. And, and the airlines cannot hide behind their own chatbots for messing us up. So hopefully there's a lesson learned there, at least in Canada. It may not prevail under U.S. courts yet, 
But there is some legal precedence there, and I hope people will uh, be able to do that. All right, let's go to some of your emails. Here's one from Steve who writes, I recently heard of an app called the Mobile Passport Control from Customs and Border Patrol. That's CBP, of course. As I have several international trips planned this year, I was wondering if you could speak to the app's legitimacy and purported time savings. Okay, well, here's the, here's the deal. It is an app, it was, it, and it was created by U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to quicken the process of returning to the U.S. after travel. It's completely free, it's safe, and yes, to answer your question, Steve, it's legitimate. And while it can speed up the process, let me, let me give you the reality here. It does not replace your passport. You still have to bring it. You're still required to go through customs, okay? And while you do not need to fill out a physical declarations form, and you can do that on the app prior to doing it, and maybe that speeds up the process a little bit, you know what? Why would you even have that if you could qualify for global entry, right? And even though global entry might cost you X number of dollars for five years, there are so many ways to get it for free as a statement credit on any number of, of credit cards. So, you know what? I love it when somebody says, oh, there's an app for that. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. That just means there's an app for that, right? I'm sure there's an app for, you know, walking into a wall, but I'm not planning on that anytime soon. So, look, having a, ma- a mobile passport control, you know, app, it's not going to hurt you, but the real question you have to answer is, is it going to help you? And you know what? Given that, when the choice of getting global entry, it's a no-brainer. You're going for the global entry. All right? Here's one from William who says, uh, before I read this, you know, we did the show last week from the Biltmore Hotel in Arizona. We had the mayor on. We were talking about the battle for water in the Southwest. And, and so Bill wrote in and says, what is the main source of water in Phoenix? And what is the prognosis for the future of this main source? Well, Bill, we didn't know the answer to that, so we did some research. And the main source of the Phoenix water supply, actually, there are two sources. The Salt and Verde Rivers through the Salt River Project, and the one you got to watch out for, the Colorado River, which runs through the Central Arizona Project. And everybody's stealing from the Colorado River. That's the problem, right? And the water levels are dropping, in many cases, precipitously, not just in Arizona, but in Nevada. And so those are the, uh, the status of the source of the water. Now, right now, some good news to report. Uh, the Phoenix water supply is in relatively good shape simply because uh, their water supply is not dependent on annual precipitation. If they had to do that, given the number of sunny days every year, they'd really be in trouble. And, and yes, the snowpack helps them up north and the east of the valley that melts and flows in the vast reservoirs. So far, so good. But I have to tell you, no guarantees. No guarantees. And so right now, they're doing okay in Phoenix. But at a certain point, you know, the folks who border on or live near the Colorado River are going to pitch a you-know-what if all of a sudden they're in jeopardy in terms of their water supply. Something to think about. And uh, it's not going away. All right. So there you have that story about Phoenix, and by the way, they could suffer a drought any day of the week, right? So far, they're doing okay, all right? There you go. Uh, Bottom line is, uh, every time I see a hotel, and I ask how many rooms are in the hotel, and they say, oh, 180, that means 
three times a day, there 180 people are flushing their toilets. Three times a day, they're taking showers or baths. And where is that water coming from? More importantly, where is that water going to come from tomorrow, next week, or next year? And you know what? It's all about education and doing the right thing. Speaking of that, when we come back, we'll be joined by Joaquin Diaz, the CEO of the Foundation for Environmental Education in Mexico, and what they're doing right here in Los Cabos. So stick around. More of Ion Travel from Baja California Sur and the Chileno Bay Resort right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Chileno Bay Resort in Los Cabos in Baja, California, sir. Uh, of course, you can always reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with the imaginative name, PeterGreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world. Opportunities for you to get up close and personal and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those experiences and those opportunities, and Los Cabos is certainly uh, not an exception. Los Cabos Humane Society, founded 32 years ago. They do a great job of finding loving homes for animals in need, providing medical treatments, and educating the public. Very important about how to care for animals. You can volunteer in so many ways, including walking the dogs, visiting the cats, and more. Maybe even get to walk a cat. But the bottom line is, I have to warn you, I know this from personal experience, if you go there and volunteer, there's a reasonably excellent chance you're leaving with one. What's wrong with that? But either way, it's a great opportunity to meet the very people who live here, and who better to give you the best tour ever of Los Cabos than the people you just helped? If you want more information, it's easy. LosCabosHumaneSociety.org. That's it. Or go right to our website, PeterGreenberg.com, for the global list, and it's a comprehensive list as well. Speaking about giving back, I want to join my next guest, uh, Joaquin Diaz. He's the CEO of the Foundation for Environmental Education in Mexico, you know, so many people, Joaquin, and welcome. So many people, you. you know, come to Mexico and they're just on vacation. Uh, they never leave the resort. They hang out. They go to the beach. They drink. Uh, and, that's, and that's their Mexican experience. You're a little bit different than that. Yes, uh, that experience in our point of view, I mean, for the environmental uh, Foundation for Environmental Education, is that you have to be aware that uh, every travel has an impact, an environmental impact. So have, we have to, all the stakeholders has to work uh, trying to improving the quality of, uh, of life in a, in a long-term perspective. And by the way, I should tell everybody, you've been around since 1981, that's 43 years. Yes, uh, this organization was founded in, in, in Europe, and our operations are based in, in Denmark. But we, are, we have been working uh, along around the world. We have 55 uh, countries that are members of this organization, including also United States. We have uh, blue flag sites also in, 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 in America. 
What does it mean to say you have a blue flag? A blue flag site is a, a, a beach, or a, a boat, or a marina that works into uh, towards the, 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 the improving of uh, environmental development. So we're talking about water quality? Water quality, safe. Of course, secure. waste management. Waste management. Of course, all, all, the, all the management of the beach, of the, of the site, because you have to respect the flora, the fauna, all the environmental uh, assets that represent, are represent in every, every site in, in the world, not only here in Los, in Los Cabos. I have to tell you that, and this gets me so angry, wherever I go in the world, uh, the tourists, and, and I'm, I'm talking to them, they litter everything. I mean, they just throw stuff on the sand. They throw, throw stuff on the beach. And there's one thing to say, okay, we're going to do a beach cleanup every other Saturday. Right now, you need a beach cleanup every day. I know. I, I'm, I'm upset, too, because um, this is a, a, a very regular way to, to think, a very regular way to, to, to travel. But it has to be, to be, to be to st- we have to stop that. Because we have a responsibility, you have to be environmental responsibility. It's not a romantic issue. It's a it's a very important way. It's to, a practical issue. It's a practical. We have to do it because we have to think about the future. Then the future is not the future generations. We have to act now. And I I have to insist it's not uh, about only a romantic way to see the 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 the. the the, the future of, this, of our sites, our beaches, is a, a reality that we have a, a very impact um, way, um, sites in all over the world. You have to think, for example, just the, the cigarette butts. It's very difficult to, to, to clean it from the beach. It's just an example. And the pet and all the things the, that, that, that you litter just like that, you know what I'd love to see? And I, I've never seen it. And maybe there's a reason why, but I'm going to throw it out there. How about a no-smoking beach? It's, um, it's one of our practices in the, in the Blue Flag site. We, don't, we, we are promoting that uh, smoking stopped. But there's no, be honest, there's, there's no way just to promote it. You have I to know. enforce it. Yes. You know, I remember when they came up with the idea of no smoking on airplanes. It'll never work. It'll never work. Guess what? It worked. What a point, yes, of yeah. course. We have to do it, but it has to be done under the, 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 the normativity. So, because... Well, you need the private sector to help of out. Of course. You need the hotels and the resorts. Of course, they are on board, I think. It's, uh, there are some special um, uh, sites that, uh, that you can smoke. But uh, we have to, to, to work with the... With the but with going the beyond just the smoking, it's yeah. about educating your visitors, right? And, and, and there's, it's not mutually yeah. you know, exclusive, meaning it can be romantic. You, you're coming yeah. down to, to Los Cabos to have a wonderful time, to have a wonderful vacation. Yes. But I think people need to be educated maybe on the way down as to what they can expect in terms of a great experience, but also what is expected of them. Of course, that's why we are called the Foundation for Environmental Education. We inform and also trying to educate, starting with awareness. You have to see what, uh, you have to know what is that impact because you have carbon footprint. Some, I have to tell you, so I'm, I'm being honest yeah. here. I, am, I travel more than most people I know, right? And most people you know. Nobody has yet sat me down and said, Peter, you're on an airplane today going from you know, New York to Los Angeles yeah. or... Los Angeles to Los Cabos, right? This is your carbon footprint. 
No one's explained it to me. Because, oh, you can offset your footprint. I can't offset something I don't know. Yeah, you can offset, of course. Yeah. There, we have to promote more. We, we have a tool, a tool in, in, our, in our programs to calculate the, that impact. High Adric and uh, carbon footprint, of course. So I think the, 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 um, all the, the, the companies, airplane companies, has to offer the opportunity to offset that. All. And they have to offer to offer it almost as an incentive, as, as opposed yes, to a punishment. I know. You know, I mean, yeah. people need to know that it's something, it's in it for them. Uh, because people tend to be very selfish when they travel, right? You know this. Um, I admit to it, by the way. I have to always be reminded myself. So once you get beyond that, working with the hotels, working with basically what goes into a hotel meal, use of plastics, use of... Uh, the single-use plastics. I must say, most of the hotels these days have figured it out. During the pandemic, they had enough time to actually get it together. So you're getting rid of the single-use straws. You're getting rid of the plastics, the plastic water bottles. They've been replaced now, right, with, with, with thermoses that people can reuse. This is a great deal. You're looking at airports now where they're giving you water refilling stations once you pass security so you can bring your empty bottle and not have to buy a $9 bottle of plastic water bottles and refill your thermos. That's all good. As as a tourist, you have to see the the alternatives. For example, in in, in booking, you can see the sustainable travel. It's with a leaf, and you you can check it. For example, we have in Mexico 205 hotels that are are working with sustainable practices and it's it's measure we have the, the assessment for that it's not only a statement it's a reality and it, it, and we are we have been working for them for at least for four years so your travel can be sustainable if you stay if you stay in a sustainable hotel uh, in a hotel with, with sustainable practices well we live in a world of branding so as part of that yeah. brand if they have your sign saying that they're meeting the standards, you can see that at the time you make the reservation. Of course, you you can see it there, and it's important to see it there. Of course, we have to, to we have to make it every time that we are planning our travels. You have to see what is the importance to be sustainable in your travel. Are you doing something for children too, for for kids? We have eco schools. For example, here in Los Cabos, we are working with uh, eleven eco schools trying to act now and trying to prepare them because they will be the, the mayors, they will be the, the managers in the hotels, they will be working in, not in, the, in the near future uh, with a very uh, difficult reality that we are um, upsetting the, the earth. So we have to, to work now. And we have been working for them in, in primary, in, in elementary school, in high school. And yes... What's your website? www.fimexico.org. Okay, so it's www.fiemexico.org. Yes. Which stands, of course, for the Foundation for the Environmental Education. Joaquin Diaz, thank you so much for joining us. Peter, Good idea you. with the kids because the kids are going to lead the way. Yeah. You know it. I know it. I think the kids know it too. Yeah. Back with more on Ion Travel as we continue from Los Cabos and the Chileno Bay Resort. We're going to go diving right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
more information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you from the Chileno Bay Resort right here in Los Cabos. You can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. You know, when you come to a place as beautiful as Los Cabos, you're going to see great marine life. You might even see great photography. You hope for great conservation. My next guest knows a little bit about all three. He's a Jersey boy who left about 20 years ago and figured out he had to come here. And he runs a place called what? Dive Ninja. Dive Ninja, right here in Los Cabos. Jay, how are you, man? Jay Clue. I'm wonderful. How's it going today, Peter? It's going great. So, first of all, what brought you? Did you come on vacation and then discovered it? I actually came here for a project. It was only supposed to be here for a couple of weeks, but then just kind of kept extending, extending, and fast forward seven years later, I'm still here in town. And, of course, you, you know, things aren't, like, independent of each other. They're interdependent, whether it's marine photography or conservation. You've combined both. Yeah, they've kind of come together. I, I picked up my first camera about the same time I started getting involved here with uh, the projects here and building our company here. And so what are you actually doing on a, on a given day? Uh, it depends. goes changes. I could be on a brand shoot or a magazine shoot, or I could be working on a conservation program or working with our expeditions and these different projects we have here in Baja. But when you, when you take people underwater uh, on a photography shoot, mm-hmm. that's a whole different world. And that's a whole different experience than that they've never seen before. Yeah, completely different, and it's a totally way different way of experiencing it. You I mean because we're, we're looking more to, to capture the beauty of it versus just like going for fun. And you're not catching any fish either. <laughs> no, not catching any no. fish. <laughs> what's what's the biggest surprise for people when they when they did because it's so easy to lose lose control of your attention span? Because first of all, it's one thing to be with a scuba gear on. It's the second thing you've got a camera. And now you're like blown away by what you're seeing. You can lose perspective. Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those things that um, people really start to uh, more see the minute duty, uh, beauty in it all. They kind of like start to notice things that they didn't notice before when they were kind of overtaken with the gear and being around it. But then when you start looking from like through the camera, you just start to pick up those little details and start to notice more beauty in the ocean. Of course, every photographer will tell you you got to wait for the light, right? But you're underwater. You also have to wait for the fish. And the sea life. Yeah, and that's, that's a big one for us is, I mean, we can go out for shoots sometimes and spend hours looking for, you know, waiting for something to arrive. Um, it's just, a, you know, you can't control nature, though. But when it does, it's always magical. I remember we were down here shooting a couple of years ago on one of my television shows, and my director, who was not really very familiar with water life and sea life, said, what time do the dolphins arrive? <laughs> we had to basically <laughs> hold his hand and tell him it doesn't exactly work that way. But what's the one thing you've been waiting for that you've never gotten? Uh, right now, top of my list is that I really want to shoot polar bears. Can't find them in Cabo, but it's something. If there's I a really polar bear want. in Cabo, that's a completely different story. You know that. <laughs> Very different story. <laughs> but I'm talking about within these waters. Um, here, I think one of the ones I'd really like to see is uh, a few years back, we discovered seeing the first sand tigers here in Cabo. Explain. Um, it's a shark that we, they had an idea that it was in the area, but had never been documented or seen. And I happened to be the first person to see it and document it, but it was in very poor light, really dark, really deep. So I'd love to see them again and be able to actually capture them and, uh, take some great photographs of them. Of course, given seasonality, there's a time for whales and this Mm -hmm. is right. So when are you actually looking for whales? For whales, we're anytime from mid-December until uh, mid-April. Cool. And what kind of whales? Well, we get humpbacks are the primary that we see here. We also see gray whales, fin whales, sperm whales, blue whales. Pretty much all sorts of whales come through this area. And you've captured them all? Pretty much almost all of them, yeah. 
Sharks? Sharks, tons of them, over 14 species in the area. All right, so you have the nurse sharks? Uh, no nurse sharks here. But you have the hammerheads? We do have hammerheads, two kinds, two whale different sharks? species. Whale sharks? Uh, the whale sharks have to be your best. Oh, they're incredible, yeah. And we get them in, what's really interesting about this area is you can see them in different stages of their life. We can see juveniles, we can see massive pregnant females, and kind of anywhere in between. But now we have to talk about conservation because it's one thing to go and photograph, right? We all, we're dealing with over-tourism in so many other parts of the world. How do you manage that here? So with us, with Dive Ninjas, the company was kind of created as a way to use tourism to support conservation and research in the area. So we give back to programs by donating upwards of 40% of our profits to help fund these programs here. And then we also have community programs that we're working with to kind of bring the local community up and get them involved in the ocean and inspire them to fall in love with it. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you're also limiting the number of people on any one trip. Of course, yeah. We use much smaller numbers. Um, one, it's better, it gives a better experience for the client, but then it also leaves uh, you know, less damage on the uh, environment. Are people scared to go? Sometimes, yeah. We get some people that are a little nervous their first time getting in the ocean or seeing these Well, let's things. face it. You get down there with a whale shark, that's one big creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they're, they, they're, they're gentle. <laughs> they don't attack. But the sheer size of them... I would probably lose my air hose. Okay. <laughs> they, it's incredible. Um, and we've had some really fun times with it. Actually, my, my mother, I took her to see them for the first time a couple years ago. And she was like deer in headlights when she hit the water and this massive whale shark's coming towards her. She just froze up like and was like completely stared. But afterwards, she was like ecstatic about it. They're married now? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> okay. Just checking. <laughs> Where do you actually see the challenges for conservation here in Los Cabos? Uh, I think some of the big ones is trying to change the perception as well as to also kind of um, show people that, you know, there's a lot to be um, proud of here and a lot to really want to work to protect here and kind of make a big difference here. Because, you know, we've we've dealt with places that have been overfished, uh, that have been over scubaed, right? We have coral reef issues, other parts of the world. What's the biggest challenge then? I think here is in what well, partly is sheer size. Um, I mean, Los Cabos is a massive tourist destination, so you have a lot of people coming through the area. Um, but it also gives us a lot of opportunity to utilize that and kind of turn it on its head and use that for a force for good. Jay Clue from Dive Ninja right here, and his mother's still talking to him, which is amazing. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. And we'll be back with more from Los Cabos when we return to the Chileno Bay Resort right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues from Los Cabos and the Chileno Bay Resort. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Let's go right to the phones. I've got uh, Nirmal on the phone. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Peter. How are you? Good. So how can I help you? Yes. So I had a question for you, uh, and that is, can you point us to travel agents who could help us plan a vacation to Panama? To provide some context, we mostly tend towards independent travel geared towards cultural and culinary and nature and outdoors-oriented experiences, including ecotourism. And we tend to favor economy to mid-range options as opposed to luxury travel, and we prefer to avoid all-inclusive. 
So I really okay. appreciate it. You give you give me a good uh, a good recipe there. First and foremost, uh, there are a number of consortia out there that do that for a living uh, in terms of travel advisors. They have one of them is called Virtuoso, one of them is called Signature, and one of them is called Travel Leaders. They all tend to be on the somewhat upscale side. However, what benefits you is that if you call them and say I'm listening with the same question you gave me. They will connect you to a travel agent who does nothing but specialize in Panama. And that's exactly what you need. Somebody who's got great local knowledge, somebody who has preferred supplier relationships, which means, of course, you can save some money, but also who understands the latest cutting-edge information about the experiences there. Now, obviously, if you're looking to just do independent travel, that's okay. You're independent travelers. You're not going to be stuck on a bus. You're not going to be with a group. But you do want to have a cultural immersion that makes sense for you, and you want to be able to do it in a reasonable way. So I would start with those three consortia. At the same time, keep in mind that if have you been to Panama before? I have many years ago. Well, you know, their airline, Copa, is a great airline. Um, most people don't realize how many U.S. cities they fly to, and uh, and they have a great hub system down there. So you can even go to Panama and then use Copa to go somewhere else as well. So check them out as well. But again, it's a signature it's Virtuoso, and it's Travel Leaders. They're all on the web. Then you'll get their phone number, you'll call them, and they can refer you then to one of their specialists. And if you don't like it, call the other one. But you're going to find information that you're not necessarily going to find online. Okay? Great. Thank you. You got it, and thanks for the call. Sure thing. And let's get back out to the phones out in Honolulu. I've got Janice on the phone. Hey, Janice. Hi, Peter. How can I help you? Well, okay, this summer I am going to be a volunteer at Lourdes for the Pilgrims. And I am afraid of being through Paris during or prior to the Olympics. Now, we're scheduled to leave Honolulu around the 7th of July and um, fly into Paris maybe the 9th and then head down to Lourdes perhaps the 13th of July and stay there for a week and then return back to Paris and fly back Honolulu. So questions I have for you is, and you've been telling me, kind of avoid Paris because of the Olympics. Yes. What kind of um, what kind of recommendations are, can you offer me? This is when my group scheduled our trip and to be there. And um, well, I don't think I can. I know you that. don't think you can change it. Well, listen, speaking of Lourdes and miracles, you're going to need a miracle. To get, I am. to get a decent rate because it's doubled and tripled in Paris already. Hotel rates are at two and three thousand dollars a night. They've doubled the cost of the metro, even a, a ride on the metro. They've increased the price of the of the Louvre just to get in, and even an Airbnb that used to go for three hundred dollars a night is now going for twelve hundred dollars a night. And that's not okay. just wait. I'm not done okay. yet. Here we okay. go. All right. And that's right. not just for the Olympics. That's for the whole month of July because people like you were going oh. early. So here's my suggestion. Uh-huh. Do you have to be in Paris? Can you be anywhere else in France? I could. I can make that recommendation. Well, how about this? You will. <laughs> okay. All and, right. And, and look, you've got a great train system there. Uh, out of any of the, ba- the basic train stations there, look, go outside of town for an hour or two. You'll, you'll be in smaller French villages. It will not be as expensive. You'll have a great cultural immersion. You don't have to visit the Louvre on this trip. And then you only no, we and, don't. and if you want to come into Paris, it's a day trip for you, and you're not going to get stuck with uh, an expensive hotel room. 
Okay. Uh, we got our reservations at the Brighton for $500. Well, look, if you got that, hold on to it. You're very lucky, and then keep it. But keep in mind, okay. it's going to be a very crowded city, and uh, not everything's going to be available to you without standing in a long line and paying a premium, okay? So if you got the reservation okay. for 500 bucks a night at the Brighton, keep it. But use the, the train system to get out of town and enjoy yourself while you're there. Deal? Yeah, but, but okay, to get from Paris to Lourdes, uh, the TJB, they're going to up that price? Of course, but make that reservation now. Okay. All right? All right. Okay, thanks, yeah. Janice. We got to go. We got to go. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, I'll let you know. All right, when we come back, <laughs> right. more from Los Cabos as Ion Travel continues right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you again as Ion Travel continues from Los Cabos and the Chileno Bay Resort. Of course, you can always reach me. We answer all your emails every time we get them. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number. Question or problem, we'll solve it right here on the air. My next guest has quite a pedigree. She's worked with everybody from Banyan Tree to Mandarin Oriental, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, and of course, Auberge, where she is right now, because Auberge is the, is the parent company, if you will, of the Chileno Bay Resort right here in Los Cabos. I call her Evita. Evita Lopez, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Peter. Now, you're the resort manager, but that means so many different things to so many different people. I'm interested from you today on how we come up with a new defini- definition of, of luxury travel because there are so many hotels in the last, let's say, five years that have opened up here in Los Cabos, right? You have unbelievable places ranging from the Montage to, to Nobu, and everybody is just more luxurious than the other. But for getting the bricks and mortar, my question is, have the travelers changed? What are they looking for? What, are they, what do they want now that they never wanted before? And what do they don't want now that they always wanted before? Absolutely. And that's a very interesting question, uh, Peter, because what we've seen through all these years, and of course, after pandemic, the way of traveling has changed a lot. And, uh, and this is about connection. This is about connecting uh, with nature. The people, they want to spend more time outdoors, you know, with outdoors activities, connecting with the, with the ocean, connecting with the, with the nature, with the, wild, with the wildness of the, of the places. And I think the people is looking uh, for more very uh, comfortable places to get out of the stress of the cities. I'll, I'll give you an example as it, as it applies to like cruise ships. You have these luxury expedition ships now that are going to some pretty harsh locations like the Antarctic. But while you're out there kayaking in sub-zero weather, and it's so harsh, when you're done, you're on the ship with a butler and strawberries and champagne. So this, this, it's it's a complete pack. It's a it's a complete package then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a mix because it's something that you can feel on the ultra luxury resorts. I mean, the, you uh, you always try to connect with the people, with the guests, uh, especially you know doing this a very special. Uh, and unique experiences, it's always combined with the traditional service uh, without uh, losing the luxury. So I guess the combination would be they want to necessarily not just stay at the pool, 
they want to leave the resort and experience. They want to experience the desert. They want to experience right. other parts of Los Cabos that might not lend themselves just to be a lounge chair at the pool. Correct. But then they want to come back and have a fish taco. Absolutely. That very, very, very easily said. <laughs> but not always easily done. No, no, because sometimes we don't have the, the you know, those great ideas. We need to have the creativity and uh, to identify what the guest needs, what they want. Or what they demand. Or what they demand. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, how many want to, uh, you know, hang glide over the hotel? How many want to go ballooning? How many want to go four-wheel driving and, you know, ATVs? Right. Uh, you, you provide that. Yes. Yes, that's correct. And uh, part of our soul of the place in Chileno, it's, you know, those uh, to the, the free spirit, you know, the adventure. And uh, that's one of the, uh, our, most of the guests look for, you know, the free spirit to be, uh, to be and to do whatever they want to do within the resort and then explore Los Cabos. They know that they are in a beautiful place here. So. Now, the other thing that I've noticed, not just here, but so many other luxury lo- locations, is that I don't care what people will tell you in a survey, they are liars because they do not change their lifestyle when they change their location. Oh, I'm going to be on a resort. I don't want to be disturbed. They are disturbed. So I saw five people yesterday at the pool fixated on their laptops. They were doing business. Yes. Right? But they were here. But they were here. So they're really extending their trips in a way, right? So they can, they've gone from like working in an office to working from home to working from anywhere. And anywhere could be right where we are right now. Right. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. I mean, we have, uh, you know, these different, uh, different segments of the people. That, but Chileno, it's a place uh, for, for, for everybody, you know, for those who wants to relax, for those who wants to connect with By the way, the people at the pool, they would tell you while they're on their laptop that they're relaxing. Yeah, absolutely. And they then, would tell their office that they're working. <laughs> yes. And the challenge for us is to connect that uh, both, uh, you know, both, both needs from the guests. It's, I'm working, but I'm still I'm relaxing. And how can we part, to be part of it? Well, one of the things I've noticed at so many of the luxury hotels that were designed for a different definition of luxury and vacation, the lighting was terrible. Because people just, oh, I, but people who want to go somewhere, they want to read, they want to work, they want to be able to think in their room. So the brighter the room that you give your guests more options, they can also, condense, you know, they can turn the lights down. Yeah. But if you trap a guest with mood lighting, you put them in a bad mood. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I, I want to give you a very good and, and, and a quick example. It's just like the people having breakfast, you know, every morning. And they're even on their laptop. And when we have our uh, well-watching season, which is right now, you can see the people working. And then suddenly they disconnect from work and they start watching the whales. That's the, one of the most beautiful spectacles that we have in, in Los Cabos. So the people forget a little bit about work and they start watching. So here's how you do it. You're working, you see the whales, you tell your office back home you're about to go on a conference call. Yeah. But it's a conference call with the whales. Correct. It happens all the time, right? <laughs> yes. Except here's what, here's what gives it away. They start shouting, look, oh my God, there it is. Right. And then they're, they're giving away. <laughs> but that's the way it works. That's the way it is. A nice yeah. combination. Evita Lopez, the resort manager here at the Chileno Bay Resort. Thanks for joining us. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We've got a whole lot more coming when we return on Ion Travel to Los Cabos in Baja, California. Back right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. If you're just joining us, I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. But let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out your maps, boys and girls. 23 degrees, 15 minutes north. 109 degrees, 45 minutes west. We are in Baja, in Los Cabos, at the Chileno Bay Resort. And, of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number. Question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. When I first came to Mexico, oh, gosh, in 1972, there were tortillas, there were um, a few empanadas running around, and uh, maybe a tamale or two. Uh, it's now a gastronomic capital of the world. Uh, you're going to see it's almost world heritage sites when it comes to food, and my next guest knows a little bit about that because he's part of it. He, uh, he's done so much, not just here, but throughout Mexico. In fact, in, 19, in 2005... I don't, I don't want to make him feel old, but he was named the best Mexican young chef. So Juan Pablo Loza, you're no longer young, but you're still the best <laughs> chef. He's the director of culinary experiences at Chileno Bay, where we are right now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. You started smiling when I talked about my original days with the tamales and the tortillas, but you'd be the first to tell me things have changed. Yes, well, we still have tortillas and tamales, <laughs> but yes, as you mentioned, uh, the Mexico has been uh, has become a very uh, interesting destination, gastronomic destination, and everybody's looking after it. And of course, now people know not only about different dishes, but also regional cuisine from Oaxaca, from central Mexico, the coast, and Baja. Of course, it's one of them. And it's, of course, it's all the spices. Yes, chiles, spices. Uh, well, we have a, a, a tremendous heritage and from the local uh, like cuisine and local ingredients. But also, when the uh, Spanish came, they brought with them a lot of ingredients. So our cuisine became larger. And, of course, throughout the years, l larger and larger with so many influences from Europe, from Asia, from different parts of the world. Now, of course, if we went to a place called Oaxaca, you and I would be spending three hours just talking about mole. Yes. How yes. many different moles are there? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. O only in Oaxaca, there are seven official. Uh, oh, I will, I will only eat official mole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, but that's how much moles. there are, yeah. And, and, of course, that's only in Oaxaca, but every region, if you go to Michoacán or Puebla, uh, there you have different styles, different versions, and different techniques. And of course, where we are right now on the Sea of Cortez, it's seafood. We have amazing seafood. Well, some people call it the the Provence, Mexican Provence, uh, because we have great wine, great seafood, similar ingredients. By the way, you mentioned great wine. This this statistic blew me away. Seventy five percent of all the wine production in Baja California is exported to France. What do they know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. Some incredible Baja wines. Uh, oh, yes. It's, a, it's, it's really good. And what is amazing is you don't have a specific style. We have so, so many uh, also heritage or influence from different winemakers. So there is no a specific grape or a specific technique. So people start to do uh, like they can do however they want. They have wonderful uh, weather and wonderful soil for that, and so it's just great quality. And of course, when we're coming to seafood, it gets into sourcing. Yes. What are you able to source? Well, here the seafood, I'm very passionate about the seafood. Um, 
Uh, I learned about the the seafood, the sustainable seafood, some years ago. And in Mexico, well, we have it's a, a country surrounded by ocean, and of course, the Baja California. We have all around uh, wonderful seafood. The weather, the water, it's a little bit colder, so we get to like all type of of fish and and seafood. So it, we're very excited to to showcase all of what we can get here. But of course, what you get has to be managed. And the problem with that, of course, in any location is overfishing and responsible sustainability. Exactly. Well, it's something that I learned some years ago, about 10 years ago, uh, about the uh, uh, overfishing, bait catch and all of that. And when I came back to Mexico, I learned that in England. And uh, and when I came you back to in England, working with Raymond Blanc. Exactly. Yeah, with one of the legendary chefs. Exactly. He's a legend. And I learned with him, especially about the product, the specific of the product about the how to get a, like good fish and with all the like you don't need to impact anything else you just get the fish uh, not overfishing all of that and uh, so we're very proud that now in Mexico we have a specific organization called Pesca con Futuro well that's an initiative from Come Pesca and uh, and we're re- we're able which, to which regulate means, which means Come, Come Pesca it's the commission of fishing in Mexico and Pesca con Futuro is fishing with future uh, and this initiative of Pesca con Futuro it's uh, working with producers or fishermen with chefs and also with uh, the final consumer to to teach people about all of these problems and how to solve it where to look for the fish and what are and the where species to avoid, and where to avoid uh, ex- specifically what are the species that you need to avoid there are a lot of traditions in mexico for example with the shark in uh, the veracruz and that area there is, there are some dishes cooked with shark but to be honest, the shark is not really healthy, and also it's very important to keep it in the ocean. So now we're like this campaign works with you can do the same dish, just use a different type of fish. Same with octopus, with lobster, with uh, tuna. There is not a lot of tuna left in the world, especially the bluefin tuna. So there are some specific organizations that manage this this uh, this fish in the correct way. Of course, it's one thing to work with everybody here in Mexico about how they go about their fishing uh, operations, but that doesn't help you if you've got these big commercial fishing factory ships coming in, you know, like the Japanese do all the time, yes. and overfish the whole area. Yeah, well, there are a lot of regulations, and what it's, uh, it's working great is now the people is more conscious about, and, uh, and if you cannot solve those big problems at least you're not part of the problem so now more information we have out it's it's great and now for example in our restaurants we always communicate like we serve totoaba from you serve, a specific you serve what totoaba explain which is a, the totoaba it's an amazing fish it's endemic from the the gulf of california and uh, and it used to be in danger of extinction especially because they were overfished to get the, I don't know how to call the buche, but it's one part, a specific part of the fish that the Chinese uh, got it to because they think it's uh, maybe aphrodisiac or something. And um, so they used to overcatch that fish. At the same time, there was a vaquita marina, which is kind of a dolphin from from the Gulf of California. And uh, they were in danger of extinction. So now there is a big project, um, in this uh, in, in La Paz, 
that they have a kind of a farm with a, they produce the food, they produce the tatuabas, and the main objective is to uh, release a lot of tatuabas. So now they're not in danger anymore. And it's and on your menu. It's on the menu. So you can try it and at the same time support all of these initiatives. Juan Pablo Loza, the director of culinary experiences, including that fish, which I never heard about till you told me last night at dinner, right here at Chileno Bay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. You like your food? I love my food. Good. Thank you. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another initiative, helping the children here in Baja, California. Back with more from Chileno Bay Resort in Los Cabos. Ion Travel returns right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Chileno Bay Resort right here in Los Cabos in Baja, California, sir. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as we do every week at this time, I encourage you to go right to our website with that such an amazing name. I think it's called uh, petergreenberg.com. But it's uh, got our comprehensive global list of all the organizations all around the world that are doing such great work and helping people and places that, and, and opportunities for you to get up close and personal and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize the opportunities. Of course, we are in Los Cabos. So what better than the Los Cabos Humane Society, founded back 1992, 32 years ago, They've been finding loving homes for animals for more than three decades, and you get to volunteer in so many different ways. But I have to give you the caution. I do it every time I mention these guys. If you go and help, if you go down there and visit, uh, you go down there and interact with the animals, there is a reasonably high chance you're leaving with one. And what would be wrong with that? Nothing. So check it out. Plus, here's the other part. You get so much back from what you give back. It's exponential in return, and you're also meeting the people who live here. Who better to give you the, the best tour ever of Los Cabos than the people you just worked with and volunteered with? LosCabosHumaneSociety.org is the place to go. And, of course, you can always check out our website, PeterGreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. Uh, every time I come down to Los Cabos, I say hi to my next guest because she's doing such great work herself and her foundation, Marissa Comelia, the executive director of the Los Cabos Children Foundation. Welcome back. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. And speaking of being around for a while, you were founded, what, 22 years ago? Yes, this 2002. year. 2002. Yeah, this year it'll be 22 years. And you've helped over 65,000 children. Well, it's now over 85,000. Come on, really? Yeah, it is. So we've helped over 80 programs, local programs that focus on children's health and well-being in these 22 years, and uh, we are going to keep going. We need everybody to join in. Well, let's talk about how people can do that, because first of all, we have to deal with the needs themselves, mm -hmm. right? We're dealing with food insecurity. We're dealing with housing. We're dealing with time that they need to be spending with people as opposed to by themselves, especially if both parents are working, uh, and an opportunity for people who are visiting here to also get involved. So tell me how all that works. Yeah, well, you know, Los Cabos is a wonderful place. It's a great destination for tourists. How but, did you come down here first? Well, I came here 16 years ago, and my 
My husband uh, was in construction. So again, we, we come here for work, many of us from mainland Mexico. And well, um, the growth is faster than the services, right? Economic and population growth is really, it goes really fast and not necessarily the services. So that's, that's where we come in. So we've been providing um, and creating access to health services since 2002 building local capacity so that children, families can find solutions to their health problems, no? mainly for children. So um, right now we're supporting 39, uh, 36 projects. Uh, How many? In the whole state of Baja California Sur. That's 36. A lot. So that's medical programs, that's nonprofits, that's our own programs that focus on improving uh, children's health. And is there an age range that you're really focusing on? Yeah, 18 and under. And speaking of the needs, you know, mental health is definitely an issue that has grown in the last years, especially after the pandemic. I would actually argue mental health issues have always been large. We're just recognizing them. That's true. It is. And, you know, as population grows, uh, so do these problems, no? And uh, we need to create structures and support systems for these families that want to help their kids and they don't know how or they don't have access to those services. Of course, you can start with basic infrastructure, playgrounds, spaces, learning yes. opportunities. You have to build that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a network of uh, playrooms that we are working together with United Way Mexico and other nonprofits um, because, yes, that's, that's something that's always... Um, a perfect tool for a family. When you have a safe space in your community where your child can thrive, that's that's a space that you want to have. And sometimes when there's poverty, when there's um, the basic services are lacking, play is the last of the priorities, right? But it's so important for the children's health. Exactly, for their mental health. That's right. And they get to interact. That's right. But what about, is there daycare? Is there after-school care? Uh, because if you have two parents, both of whom are working, where do the kids go? Yeah, it's it's an issue. And, and you know, the industry, the tourism industry, demands a lot of time from the workforce in Los Cabos. And I, would, I would guess, and you see this in many resort areas, including here, maybe Hawaii, uh, in Florida, where you see someone who's working as a housekeeper, they're, they're, they're holding down two jobs, not yeah. just one. Yeah, yeah, so both parents are working. And we do support some programs that do daycare, that take the kids from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. They get their meals. They get even medical support. Uh, they get school. Uh, those are the programs in the communities that are totally worthwhile. And we can take people to go out and see them. If, if you have people listening that want to go out and do a, a different activity in Los Cabos, we have give back opportunities for groups or for families or for individuals, and we can take you out there and you can, uh, you know, feel even better about coming to Los Cabos. And are you working with some of the hotels to do that? Yes, some of them, yeah, share their, their, the information with their guests so that they can, they can join us. You know, people just need to know about it, otherwise they're just going to stay at the beach every day. That's right. There's so much more beyond the gates, right? Absolutely. So what's your biggest challenge? Definitely population growth. Uh, the needs in Los Cabos have grown exponentially in the last, I'd say, 10 years. So as I said, we're catching up. No, We're doing uh, as much as we can to partner with nonprofits, with the government even, to make sure that 
we can fill in those gaps and those people that keep this wonderful place going can also have good quality of life. Well, I would think the government needs to be educated as well. Oh, yeah. Because it's one thing to depend on all your revenue from tourism, but if the, if the byproduct of that are, are kids who are being ignored or kids who are just being lost yeah. in, in the system... That's not good. That's that's true, and we are we are children's advocates. So we are there to make sure that um, children are an important part of their agenda. Speaking of authorities and governments, local and state, and uh, we're there to help as well. Not only to you know tell them what needs to be done, we're there to partner up and do what we can. What about the medical community itself? The the, the dentists, the surgeons, the well, even the psychologists, are you getting their their support as well? Yes, absolutely. So we have a community attention program where we receive all um, types of requests from the community. My kid has this and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I have no money to pay for this or that. And we have a pool, uh, a group of uh, doctor friends uh, that help us uh, take care of those needs where they can't receive it in their healthcare provider, no? Um, so that's where we come in to, to fill in those gaps. And yes, we, we have many, many um, volunteers from the medical community and also private medical institutions as well. So we work with whoever is willing to give back in the community. So how could I volunteer? Well, you're already doing it. So I know, but I'm talking about physically Thank you again. on premise. Oh, well, you can come out and join any of our program tours. Uh, we have different activities depending on how much time you have, uh, how many days you're going to be here. If you're a semi-permanent resident, then you can do so much more. But we definitely have something in store for you if, if you're willing. And the one thing I want to make clear, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this is not like going to another country and going to some orphanage. This is nothing. These are kids who have families. These are kids who, who have that family unit. They're part of a family. This is not going somewhere to adopt somebody. This is somebody... This is going to a place where you can just get involved and help. Right. And there's wonderful people doing incredible things out there in the community. So you're joining their team. No, you're, you're, uh, you have to be willing to be a humble servant and join in the work that, in the great work that's already being done. And you don't have to be bilingual either. No, no, we can help you communicate. <laughs> Con mucho gusto. <laughs> Absolutamente. There you go. Donde está el baño? See, I've got it all down. Yeah, you just need if, a couple If I got that line down, there. I can go and help. You can get along. Don't worry. I love it. We're talking to Marissa Camelia, the executive director of Los Cabos Children Foundation. Important note, what is your website? LosCabosChildren.org. You can contact us there if you want to volunteer, uh, if you have something to offer to our community, if you are bringing... And by the way, everybody has something to offer. Of course. But your baker, candlestick maker, doesn't matter because kids are the common denominator. Even even knowing more about what we do is helping out. You never know when somebody else is going to need it. You know what? I completely agree, and you can count on me. Thank you, Peter. And, and lovely to see you again. Yeah, you too. That's Marissa Camilla, the Executive Director of Los Cabos Children Foundation. And any of the hotels here in Los Cabos can help you in, interact and get involved the minute you get down here. Back with more of Ion Travel from Chileno Bay Resort right here in Los Cabos when we return right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
more information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Chileno Bay Resort here in Los Cabos in Mexico. You can always reach out to me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. You know, when you take a look out the window here, you're looking at the Sea of Cortez, but you're also looking at Chileno Bay when you think about it. Yep. And my next guest knows a little bit about that. <laughs> She's not only a biologist, but she specializes in coastal oceanography, Monica Cervantes. Nice to see you again. Nice the to last see time you. I was down here <laughs> with you was about six years ago. Yep. And we were talking we were talking about turtles yes i know <laughs> but what's changed in the bay itself because it's it's sort of complex isn't it yes yes right now and i just want to start to share with you that the official name of the bay or all these waters it's gulf of california because a lot of people still know that sea of cortez like it's more like marketing name even if you check in google maps in english you will see like gulf of california name because they changed the name like like me maybe around like 30 years ago but even a lot of locals, we don't know a, a lot about this information. But you know, even I, I live on a boat in Los Angeles, yeah. and my marine charts say Sea of, of Cortez. Cortez. Yes, yes, it yeah. is. It's like a, I think it's a really good name too, because it's like even the name that we have of these waters doesn't matter because the waters are really rich. We have a lot of biodiversity of fish. Jacques Cousteau came here in the 60s to explore the waters, and they says that these waters are the aquarium of the world because of the number of the species that we have here a lot of biodiversity, big mammals, small ones, a lot of invertebrates, and all this bay here in front of us is one of the most beautiful areas to explore of snorkeling. We have a lot of coral on top of the rock, a lot of fish around the coral, and it's like really beautiful place to explore just here in front of us. Do you have an idea how many species? I don't want to lie to you. I don't I don't have an idea, like a specific number, but for sure more than 100 species of fishes. Amazing. And so, and it's not just like one type of shark it's right it's yes a- we have a lot of different kind of sharks we cannot see them a lot close to the bay fortunately because they I was pre- about to say fortunately <laughs> yes because they prefer to stay like away from humans but we have sometimes here close to the bay we have the one the one shark the white tip shark it's one reef coral shark one we could have them right now we have them because they are like colder waters right now we are in winter so they are just starting to arrive and sometimes if we are lucky we can see them just maybe just resting or sometimes swimming. But the bay out here is what five different meter w- w- ways of depth. Yes, yes, because we start here the shallow water. A lot of people just prefer to feel safer just to step on the sand, and even just close to the shore, you will be able to see like a lot of fish just close around and enjoy of the nutrients that we have. Because also these waters are really rich about nutrients, food for the fish. So that's why also we have a lot of presence of biodiversity around. So yes, we could enjoy like a lot of things. Now, a lot about Cabo San Lucas, when you think about it, it's it can be windy sometimes. Yeah. It can be rocky. Yeah. It's, some of it's not swimmable, but this is. Yes. This like, a, I think it's one of the plus here because we have a lot of coast. Yes, as you told, but I think this is like swimmable beach, really safe place. We have a space for snorkeling. We have areas for paddling, kayaking, and use another toys that we have here. So yes, we have like all the spaces and that's why we have a lot of people too, to visitors, even the people that rent boats like from Cabo San Lucas they or San Jose. Yes, they end in here, like in front of us in the bay. And they can just jump right in. Yes. And too. they do. I've done it. Yep. 
you, you should do it right now too. Well, not well, right I'm talking now, to you, but, I mean, <laughs> but in this visit. <laughs> exactly. What's your biggest challenge? Because, you know, once you have a situation like this, you got to protect it. Yeah. I think the biggest challenge here and the same around the world, I think we are us humans, the human activity, but here we're trying to like the sustainable tourism here, we try to engage with, uh, we take care a lot of the actual and the future impacts about like talking about environment, social and uh, cultural heritage that we have because that is like kind of the all the idea to keep sustainable tourism from here and for all the visitors because it's like really important to let them know we love to share as Chileno, we love to share with the guests how important are the positive impacts that we could do with sometimes with just little actions. For example, here we talk a lot about with the guests about the use sunscreen. A lot of people just use a regular sunscreen, but here we try to share with them that the good ones for the coral are the coral-friendly sunscreens, and you could use it, and you will protect your skin, and you will protect also the coral. Also, we try to tell them that if they don't want to use this kind of sunscreen, we have rash guards to protect the skins, are much better option, and we explain them why. Exactly. Because it's not like, you, you cannot do this, you should do this. I will explain you why, and all the team and all the here in Chileno, we explain them why, and a lot of the people, it's really beautiful when the people say something like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm now, that I know I want to change, I want to protect the species, I want to protect the environment, and I will spread the, the word with more of my friends and family out, out here from Mexico. Like, it's amazing. We're talking to Monica Cervantes, biologist and also coastal oceanography specialist. I will tell you my secret. Get on a horse <laughs> on the beach and then ride it up to the mountains. <laughs> That's the way to go, right? The mountains here are like, I hear we have the last cowboys here in Baja, and they are like, a, I think like a, a lot of people didn't, don't know about them in the Sierra La Laguna, really beautiful tradition, so yes. Okay, see you on the horse. Yep. <laughs> Monica Cervantes, nice to see you again. Yep. And when we come back, we're going to go with turtles again. Yep. Your favorite topic. Stick with <laughs> us, folks. Back with more from Los Cabos and the Chilena Bay Resort right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Chileno Bay Resort right here in Los Cabos. You can always reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. You know the drill with your email, your phone number, and your problem, and we will talk about it on the air, maybe even solve it. Speaking of solving problems, when you talk about conservation, my next guest knows a little bit about that from his hotel experience. He's the general manager of the Pueblo Benito Pacifica. His name is Rene Virgilio. How are you, sir? Fine. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. You know, almost every time I come to Los Cabos, I'm checking out the turtles. 
Right. Right? Uh, you have to come at the right time. Exactly. Uh, there's a time where they, they nest. There's a time when they hatch. But it, but at your particular property, that has special importance, doesn't it? Yes, we do. We do have a program that has been there for more than 20 years. We started in 2003. And uh, to give you an idea of, of our program, how it runs, we at this point of time, we've been uh, released over a, a million turtles. A million? So far. Right. Wow. A million, a million uh, turtles since 2003. Now, I've been on the beach. I've done one of the releases. All right. And, and of course, they're so cute. We know yeah, they're that. They're amazing. And they and they they have their own radar. They know where they need to go. Right. right. Instinctively, they know. But the, the thing that always uh, it just astounds me is that of all like what's the actual survival rate? Because it's it's kind of precious. It's you know it's high. It's it's about ninety percent of survival rate. And uh, the thing is, when when we know when we notice one of the uh, the turtles comes to the beach and and they do their nest, what the, our job is to to protect them. So what we do is uh, and they usually do it at night. Exactly, we do it at night. We 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 notice when when they come over and uh, and our job is to take all the nests, all the eggs one by one, and take it to the area that we have. Uh, Especially made for that, so we, we have we certified by the Semarnat, which is the the authority. And you uh, have to watch authority. out. And you have to first of all, the one when I did it, we had infrared lights at night. You couldn't take flash photographs. Right. You, ju- you just have to be very quiet because they're in the process of lay- laying the eggs. Exactly. And the good thing about our property, uh, it, it's a large property. We are more than eighteen uh, eighteen hundred acres. So we have a, a very secure, uh, secure beach. We have no people around. We have no lighting. So th- there is no parties on the beach and, and all that. So th- they've okay, been very comfortable to come over. Here's the thing that, that completely blows you away. They come back to the same beach. Exactly. They, they, I think they know our beach is, is, is very good for, for them. So, <laughs> But, I mean, I saw the same thing in Costa Rica. I saw the same thing in other locations. They have a radar system that and a sonar system. Whatever they've got for directional purposes – they're actually quite accurate. They are. They are, and uh, they normally go to the, to the same area. So we, we know what, what you know. We notice them when they come, and uh, and as I said, our job is to to take care of the eggs, bring them to the to the to the area we have especially made for them, and then we take care of them. But you also have to protect it from poaching. Right. Right. But uh, that that that's afterwards. That's when when they born. Right. right, exactly. Exactly. So we, we know because we tag every single nest. So we know uh, when, an you average know, you know day, the dates, when, exactly. Right. We know the dates and uh, we know exactly or, or at an average date when they're going to. How, lo- how, how long is the incubation? It's uh, from 45 days to 60 days, depending on the breed. So but, you have but a, normally a, it's like a 15 days. day window. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. We, have, we have a window and uh, we know an, an average day when, when they're going to. To be out and uh, and we're you know just putting attention on them and uh, and we we notice when the sun start start to to sink a little bit, is when we know they're coming up, so we help them to you know coming out. <laughs> it's their own special coming out party. Exactly, they, and uh, and it's an interesting process because uh, you notice them when they're coming out. You help them a little bit. You leave you leave them for about ten minutes, just you know, to, so they can to figure it out there, for themselves. Exactly, right. Figure it out, and then. Uh, we secure them, and then we program with a guest to, you know, they, they release and help them to go Other to the Other than beach. the physical release. Right. How else do you involve your guests? Uh, you know, I brought these for you. This is a special gift. With, uh, 
this is part of, explain a little bit of the, of the our uh, glass recycle but also the 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 totaries. so we we send them also uh, a notification a day before or two days before when we're going to have their release and uh, and invite them to participate with us and then they, they go out to the beach they go out to the beach uh we normally tell them where to go or if they go to one of our our uh, lobbies in in every hotel we, we take them over and, and and approach them and present them how the program works and uh introduce with it with our people and and explain how they and they're going to release them to the beach and let me guess it's not about a selfie shot no 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 it's uh it's something that it's uh, we want them to participate more into the natural and uh, natural environment more than the, uh, the selfie, you know, type of thing. I congratulate you for that. Thank Rene you. Rene Virgilio, the general manager of the Pueblo Bonita Pacifica. Thanks for joining us, and I'll see you on the beach late at night Absolutely. with our infrared cameras. It, it will be my pleasure. And, we'll, and as Elmer Fudd used to say, we'll be very, very quiet. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. And Ion Travel will be back with your emails and your calls right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And welcome back to Ion Travel from Los Cabos in Baja California, sir, from the Chileno Bay Resort. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Let's go right on the phones out to Wheaton, Illinois. We've got Joy on the phone. Hey, Joy. Hey, hi, Peter. How can I help you? Uh, my husband and I are going to be traveling to Italy the end of March. Nice. And we've already booked our tickets using miles. That's that, that in itself. And that in itself, Joy, is amazing. You were able to redeem the miles. You have my uh, uh, utmost respect for that. <laughs> well, I did it like eight or nine months ago. No kidding. <laughs> I'm not surprised. All right, keep going. So anyway, so we're both in our 70s. I checked with our insurance company, and they do cover 80% of emergency emergency medical expenses. Wondering, should we be getting more than that? Well, what what insurance do you have? Do you just have medical insurance or do you have medical evacuation and repatriation insurance? Just medical. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, there are a number of companies that offer this and what medical evacuation and repatriation insurance is or coverage is that if you get sick or injured anywhere overseas, the, the good policies will pay to get you medically stabilized where you are. They will then consult with your own personal doctor. After all, who knows your, your medical history better than your own physician? And then based on your condition and the severity of it, they will then dispatch a medically equipped jet to then fly you to the doctor and medical facility of your choice. What most travelers don't realize is that Medicare doesn't cover you outside the U.S., and most of your medical insurance is somewhat limited as well. So I would encourage you to buy an annual policy. You could buy it on a per-trip basis, but the annual policy is the way to go. And you can you can buy that from MedJet Assist, that's one company, or TravelGuard, or Allianz. But a caution here, Joy. Make sure you buy it from a travel agent who can then walk you through the hieroglyphics of the policy language so you know what the exclusions are, Right. There may be a pre-existing oh. medical exclusion. There may be a, a pre-existing okay. age exclusion. Uh, now you're going to um, uh, you're going where to Italy, so there won't be a pre-existing destination exclusion. Italy's just fine, 
But if you were going to Syria, you probably wouldn't get the coverage. But in any case, two out of those three things are crucial for you to know the language so you know exactly what you're entitled to. So my advice is, yes, get the additional coverage. All right. Thank you, Peter. You got it. And have a great trip. Well, I, I hope we do. I hope we do. And thanks for the Thank call, you. Joy. You got it. And let's go right back out of the phones to Valparaiso, Indiana. We've got Carrie on the phone. Hey, Carrie. Hello, Peter. Thank you for taking my call. You got it. So what's up? So my wife and I have traveled uh, extensively throughout Europe many times before we had children. We now have two kids, age 16 and 19. We introduced them to European travel just before COVID hit, and we spent four weeks in Italy and Austria and Germany, and the kids completely embraced it. They just loved it. Great. Now that the world is open again, we'd like to go back, but we're discovering how crazy expensive the flights have become for a family of four. So you've been predicting that flights would start to fall, but so far they're still very expensive. Well, some of the flights actually, yeah, can, I, I can help you here. Some of the flights have started to fall in terms of prices, but they're falling for, for trips that are going in March, April, and May. You're going, high okay. se- you're going high season, and you want to go directly from Indiana to Italy, correct? Uh, well, we're, our dates are flexible. Our, our destination is flexible. Spain ah. or Italy would be great. Okay. Um, well, let's just, say for the sake are, of, let's just say for the sake of this discussion, it's going to be either Italy or Spain, Okay. And, and, yep. your, and your dates still have to be during the summer because of school or because that's when you want to go? Because of school. That's correct. Okay. So, so here's, end, of, here's, end of June. I got you. Here's what we're going to do. First of all, you're not going to try to fly to Italy or Spain to begin with. How about that? You're going to buy a Eurail okay. Pass. You're going to buy a Eurail Pass, which you have to buy in conjunction with your round-trip tickets in the U.S. And that's okay. going to give you uh, – you're going to be going for, what, two weeks? Uh, four weeks. Even better. You can buy a month-long your rail pass. It's the best bargain you can get. You don't buy first class. You buy second class. And if you and if you plan it right, you can do a number of night trains, so you're going to be saving money on hotels in some cities, number, number two. And then number three, where are you going to get the train? Guess where? You're going to get it in London. So you're going to fly from, from the U.S. to London, pick up the train there, and then start your journey through the channel, and you're off to Europe, and the, and the rest of Western Europe. You will save a lot of money that way. Now, if you're looking because. for the, if, if, if you're looking for an inexpensive airline ticket, you want to look at about two point, maybe about two and a half months ahead of time. So now we're in, okay. in now we're in March. So you're you're a little bit early, but I would say by the fifteenth to the twentieth of April, that's when you start looking for the for the inexpensive tickets to London. Okay. And that's okay. what I and that's what I do. Okay? Okay, very good, Peter. All right, let me know what happens. Have fun. Thank and, you. And, and thank it, you so much. You're very welcome and enjoy the train trip. That's my favorite. All right. Thank you, Peter. You got it, Carrie. Thanks again for the call. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, when in doubt, go from London. You don't have to pay the tax on an airplane ticket leaving from London. You take the train. And you know what? Plan it properly. You'll save a lot of money. That music means you're out of time for the entire show. Lots of people to thank. Amanda Morris, our producer. Jeff Ryder doing the boards in Connecticut. Anthony Protus, of course, helping us out always. And Susie Alba-Najera and her daughter, Sonora, for reasons only she knows. Thank you, everybody, for all the help. Thank you, everybody, here in Los Cabos. And we'll see you next week from another distant remote location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. 
You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.